When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, I'm Catherine Nichols, and this is Lit Century, the podcast where we talk about one book for each year of the 20th century. This episode, our year is 1964, and we're talking about John Cheever's story, The Swimmer. Um, And for the first time, we're adding a story by a different author, so we'll be talking about The Waltz by Dorothy Parker as well. Uh, This is special for my guest, Christine Coulson, whose book One Woman Show just came out in October. Uh, Christine wrote the wall text for the Met for many years, and One Woman Show is about a woman's life through the 20th century, um, told in wall texts. Uh, like you'd see next to the art in a museum. Both of the stories, the Cheever one and the Parker one, have some of the experimental energy and surrealist humor that she was using in her book, so uh, we bent the rules for this one episode. Um, She thought it would be fun to discuss these two stories side by side, and it was. Uh, For a summary, uh, The Swimmer is about Nettie, a man who lives in suburban Connecticut. He swims through his neighbor's pools to get home after uh, visiting some friends. Um, At the start of the story, it's a summer afternoon, and he is rich, popular, and strong, with a thriving family, and by the end, he has lost everything. His family, his health, his money, he is rejected and humiliated, and it is late autumn and dark. Um, The Waltz is the interior monologue of a woman who's dancing with a clumsy partner. Um, It's some of her actual dialogue, so it's what she's saying and what she's thinking during the dance. Um, It's a very simple story, and also very funny. So, here's our conversation. So, Chris, we originally decided we were just going to talk about the swimmer, and then we added the waltz to our um, to our plan. Do you want to tell me about why you wanted to read the swimmer, or what it means to you? I love Cheever for so many reasons, but mainly because. Um, how fast he can get you as a reader there like right where you where he wants you to be, um, like within sentences, I feel like he does the work so quickly. Um, and, and and I think as a writer, I aspire to that. But as a reader, I really enjoy it. Um, I love that kind of quick delivery. And so in The Swimmer, I just feel like, you know, this guy immediately. Um, and the way that he kind of positions him and then sort of doesn't let go of him and keeps in his point of view so deliberately and kind of allows the context of his 
arrogance and ego and delusion um, to exist um, with these other influences kind of just inflecting your own interpretation as he get, kind of reveals himself. I just think it's a masterclass. Yeah, that, that made me want to look at the actual first sentence of The Swimmer, um, which I will read right now. Um, it was one of those midsummer Sundays when everyone sits around saying, I drank too much last night. Uh, you might have heard it whispered by the parishioners leaving church, heard it from the lips of the priest himself, struggling with his cassock in the vestarium, heard it on the golf links and the tennis courts, heard it in the wildlife preserve, where the leader of the Audubon group was suffering from a terrible hangover. Um, it's a very interesting start because, for one thing, there's a second person narrator in there. There isn't actually any reference to our main character, you know? Right, right. Um, it's like it sets the it sets the the scene of the story without a character yet in this context where people are sort of acting like what we would probably now consider like college students. It's like they're just hanging out with their friends drinking too much, even though they also have, you know, one of them is a priest, right? <laughs> like the So you the know that like that that Cheever-esque society that was, you know in the suburbs and and drinking on the commuter trains and always getting into that kind of tumbling trouble. Um, I think he puts you there. I feel like that it's more of that um, boozy, swingy suburban set uh, more than college students almost. Um, oh no, I agree. I think that, I think it's like if you were to imagine a group of um, middle-aged uh middle-aged suburbanites now you probably wouldn't think of them you right. think of them as being more staid now I think. yeah yeah and I think that the the sense that they're almost like it's like there's no adults like if the priest has a hangover if everyone has a hangover it's like there's right. nobody right. that's in charge and is exactly. like a responsible person who says enough you have to stop now like put it away whatever right but then when Nettie enters He's just this like portrait of, of fitness and vigor. Mm -hmm. um, and there's that great line about him sliding down the banister that morning. Ah, um, yes. You know, that that sense of kind of um that sort of sums him up as a man who slides down his own um, where is it? He was a slender man. He seemed to have the special slenderness of youth. And while he was far from young, he had slid down his banister that morning and given the bronze backside of Aphrodite on the hall table a smack as he jogged toward the smell of coffee in his dining room. I mean, that sentence right there lays out so much about who this guy is and how he functions in the world. Yeah, and how absolutely. And kind of slides through it. Um, and even just like, as he jogs toward the smell of coffee in his dining room, uh, kind of just indicates to you immediately, like he didn't make the coffee. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's like, it's a, an idea of what the suburbs meant to people before. I mean, the, the story is from the 1960s, but it's from before, like what we would think of as like the 1960s youth culture it's more yes. like I don't know it's before the rebellion. It's more it's like, like rebellion. It's just yeah. like well being, but then there's this eeriness inside it. Yeah, like, it's kind of wasp 
um, vision of a kind of paradise that has this very um, tense underbelly because it's so devoid of actual satisfaction? Definitely. No, I, okay. So there is that feeling on the one hand, like he has so much animal spirits and he's so full of like vigor and like thriving. And then on the other hand, that he has, he's like completely rootless and has no sense of what he's doing or why. Like he has this image of himself as, uh, um, as an explorer, but like yeah. he's going home swimming through his neighbor's swimming pools, which is a surrealist touch that he thinks of these swimming pools as a river. Um, but so one of the things that I was thinking of in connect connection with this is that like before anyone knew what the suburbs were when they just built them, but they didn't know what the story was. Like, I think that what they thought they were doing was essentially the same as like, um, like Jeeves and Worcester or something. It's like they have, a country house, you know, that mm, they thought yeah. they were, what they were doing was the equivalent of having a country house and then like a townhouse in London and a country house and, you know, wherever. Um, but in that context where the wealth comes generationally, I think there's always like in, you know, in Jeeves and Worcester or in like Brideshead Revisited or uh, Mitford Midfrancier yeah. books, you know, all of those things. There's a sense of the generations that come before you that are in some way controlling what you're doing, maybe long into your life. Like maybe you you could be solidly an adult and you're still getting bossed around by your aunts. Um well, and you don't want to be the generation who screws it up. Exactly. That there's yeah, you know, there's, there's such a long legacy behind you, you know, the families that have been around for, you know, 300 years or whatever it is that like you don't want to be the one who like sees its, you know, demise. Yeah, or that has to sell off the family house yeah, and the exactly. family house yeah. has like 300 bedrooms or whatever it is. Yeah. Um that but so they're play acting that in a way in the story I think, but there's no older generation. It's yeah. like it's just themselves and their friends and there's nobody who will tell Nettie to straighten up and act right. And that he's, he's squandering his life and he's squandering like whatever it is, you know, whatever you consider the metaphor to be of the swimming pools, he goes from fine at the beginning to, you know, not at all. Okay. At the end, like somehow. But I like how in the beginning, um, like Cheever gets you to like him a little bit. Like oh, he makes yeah. him really charismatic. You know, he has that thing about um about him being like he had the impression of whatever it was, like youth and vigor and clement weather, um, <laughs> which is like a phrase nobody ever uses. Clay, everyone says inclement weather, but like the idea of like he's kind of youth and sunshine. And so you kind of get you you sort of buy into Nettie's brand at first and you and everybody knows this guy like everyone knows a guy like this oh yeah kind of just has things like you know they're attractive or they have things figured out in whatever way they do that they kind of but they're also kind of like a man child like they're like amused by just sort of stimulation and the stimulation can just be like the goofy idea of like I'm gonna swim home yeah. um that is like 
self-perpetuating that they get like overly excited by that in this kind of boyish way. Um, but that's sort of their um, their brand because they are attractive and because they are part of this world, people sort of forgive that in a way. And so I do like how Cheever like gets you there very quickly, like I said, where like that charisma comes through the guy sliding down the banister. You're, you don't like immediately think, oh boy, this is going to be a disaster. Oh no. It's, it's like a tragedy. Yeah. It's like a tragedy where there is actually something to lose. Yeah. You know, that like as he squanders himself, there's something real that is is lost. This is a sentence that that um sort of sums up I think what you're saying or uh agrees with what you're saying. Um he was not a practical joker, nor was he a fool, but he was determinedly original and had a vague, modest idea of himself as a legendary figure. Oh, I know. I love that. It's sweet. It's so a sweet. vague and modest idea of himself as a legendary figure. Um, and I think he's sort of, you know, that's very contrary to aging, you know, yeah. like kind of established that, um, that set of, um, adjectives very early on um and that's kind of your bread and butter within that whole community and then i think that's very um difficult to ever let go of yeah um and the the description of what he's doing when he's swimming is the day was beautiful and it seemed to him that a long swim might enlarge and celebrate its beauty um which seems like you can't blame him for wanting this you know right it's kind of poetic um, but I love that um, the other line right after that, where he says um, he had a simple contempt for men who did not hurl themselves into pools. <laughs> yes, yes. Because so, so there's something also like mildly competitive about all of this. Like I'm doing this. This is my fabulous idea, um, mm -hmm. and you're not doing it. Mm -hmm. And so. Oh. I think that once, you know, once we get farther into the story, I think that there's more sense that he's been more snobby and like that he's treated people callously. Like yes, there's some yeah. sense of comeuppance later. It's not just that he sort of sinks in his social standing through the course of the story. It's also like that some of the things he did in high spirits that we weren't aware of, like the affair with, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, whatever that there's people who have lost patience with him even before the story starts. Um, but I like to, I thought that they were sort of hinting at that when he says, um, um, he never used the ladder. Um, um, he never uses the ladder to get out of the pool. Oh yeah. Um, but it says something like he never used the ladder. Um, and I just felt like, um, that was a way of hinting, like, this is a guy who never needed to climb, like, who never needed to, like, um, you know, metaphorically climb um, to sort of uh, climb the ladder of, of success or climb the ladder for social status. Um, so that fundamental idea, like, I don't need the ladder, like, I'm already where I need to be, um, I thought was very, like, a lovely detail that Cheever puts in there without being heavy handed about what that could mean. Um, I think oh, that's a bunch of those. Apparent. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what do you think is the reason for his down downfall? Well, you know, I think the, um, 
the other thing I really like as fast as Cheever, you know, gets you there and gets you to not necessarily be on this guy's side, but to be with him in like, you know, as a character. Um, I'm not sure you ever understand um, what that what's at the heart of all of this, other than it's entirely um, believable to the point of being almost predictable. And so I think the way that Cheever gets you as a reader um, to not just buy into this story, but like sense its inevitability um, is so deft. Yeah, it's interesting because it's so surreal. It's not magical, but I mean, he swims across 14 ponds, the pools, and it goes from summer to winter. And he loses everything in life to a degree that is unclear how much of it was already lost when he began. Right. Um, but but probably he had not lost everything when he began uh, because his wife is there at the beginning. His wife is there at the beginning, yeah. And it's um, unclear. Um, and I think that the metaphor of that is extraordinary i mean we've seen a lot of you know there's a lot of things that take place within the scope of a day um in the scope of a journey you know a mrs dalloway or something but this to sort of take this ambition and this one afternoon and kind of stretch it to feel like the metaphor for a life and the metaphor for um a kind of decay yeah, it's like there's a decay of his his family, his social standing, everything, you know, his his relationships, everything. And I I mean I've certainly heard I think in like high school or whatever when I first read the story that that it was that he's drinking, you know, that I think that on a certain sense it's like he drinks too much and that's where everything went. It's just into alcoholism. But it it seems like that's almost too simple, you know? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's big. I think it's more, uh, it's less linear than that. Exactly. It's less yeah. linear. And it also feels like it's like partly it's his optimism and his belief in his youth. And um, it's like somehow that that is the thing that it's like the fact that he feels like what he's doing is exploring when what he's actually doing is losing everything. Um, I just love that also the metaphor for like, there's something in there. Yeah. Such a wonderfully like little boy thing to do. Like I'm going to go in the woods and I'm going to explore and I'm going to be an explorer. I mean, I think he sets up that, that childlike impetus so quickly, but I also feel like, and I've certainly known men like this um, who kind of hang on to a self-perception that um, was established in the, in their prime. Yeah. Um, when they were, you know, devastatingly handsome or the cleverest boy or whatever it was, captain of the football team. And then that self-perception like informs them and their presentation to the world for the rest of their lives. Even oh. though the kind of outside completely changes and the circumstance changes, they kind of carry that younger self 
with them and it becomes sort of their defining attribute like uh people who uh like i don't know if you you know about this um but like on twitter people are always like well as somebody who was in like gifted like i was gifted child and you know it's like at some point you have to actually stop being a gifted child like, exactly. be, like whoever you are as an adult that's just who you are it doesn't matter if you were like if you there's nothing more devastating for right there's nothing more devastating for an overachiever than to arrive exactly where they're supposed to be exactly you know, yeah. everything kind of levels off um, i worked for yeah. um when i worked for the met um, you know, I worked for Philippe de Montebello, who was, you know, a real hero of mine and an extraordinary person. Um, but when he was young, he was devastatingly handsome. I mean, just uh-huh. extraordinary looking and had this like real movie star looks. Um, and now even when I see him and he's in his 80s, um, he still very much um, walks through the world as that guy. That's really interesting. Yeah. That younger self that had, you know, all the attributes the world was looking for from him. And so I do kind of I think it's I think it's sort of a great thing. But I think in the context of um, this story, we sort of see that um, and it gets undermined, obviously, by drink and undermined by all kinds of behavior that is sometimes spelled out as with the affair. Um, And, you know, I also love structurally how um outside information is introduced through bits of dialogue yeah um, to kind of counteract this narrative where there's bits of gossip going around saying you know he borrowed five thousand dollars from me and um he's broke and he had to sell the house and um and you just get tiny little hints of the the extent of the of the devastation of this life um never really explained to you but obviously almost common knowledge among all the people he's encountering during this journey yeah there's a feeling that at the beginning that he's like the first among equals like he's the best kind of way to be amongst this yeah. set of people because he has that that sort of youthful ease and the He's good looking. And it's like, it doesn't, nobody really cares that he is having this affair or whatever. It doesn't seem like that's a big problem in his marriage or anything. Um, as long as he has the money. And then I think that. Yes, because uh, in the beginning, when he's just showing up at people's pools, they're thrilled. Their response is like, oh, Nettie, you know, like, oh, great. Let me make you a drink. Exactly. Um, that idea of a, of a culture and a, in a kind of community where someone just kind of emerges from the hedges in their swimsuit to say hello and have a drink and swim across your pool. And that that's neither questioned as a peculiar thing to do, um, nor at all, like um, they never hesitate about it. He just, um, I think that's a real indication of how he walks through the world. Well, and I also think that like we could contrast the way he is in nature. Like he just um, like he obviously loves the pool, but he also likes the landscape until he gets to the highway. And then like when he's trying to cross the highway, it's like this anxious and humiliating kind of thing that he do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I mean, I feel like there's a real moment where this this vulnerability comes out 
because he's standing in a swimsuit on the edge of the highway. And you can imagine, it's very easy for us to imagine what that looks like from the perspective of the cars as they're racing by him and throwing trash at him. And I, I felt like at that moment, it's like he's he's shrinking. Yeah, and yeah. that whole superhero self has now become very is, has become not only ordinary but like peculiar, um, and the and the subject of a totally different kind of gaze. Yeah. Um, no, I completely agree. And I was thinking about the highway and the anxiety of the highway, and thinking that uh, you know highways were pretty new at this point, mm. like that, that there weren't you know cross-country freeways it's like the same reason that there's so many um songs like folk songs from the 70s that use the word gypsy where everyone's like claiming to be a gypsy and it's like you're not it's like you just have access to freeways you know <laughs> yeah. it's like you, but they're just having this experience for the first time of what it's like to live in a place that has just massive interstates that you can use to get anywhere. Like right. And that are real like interruptions. Uh, exactly. But they're also like apt to pleasure, but it's also the kind of the interruption of what is a piece of land that they had kind of claimed as, exactly. as theirs. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's, it's like, if you're a person who's bonded to the idea of this rolling countryside, then a highway is a huge interruption and right and it's, and and it's a disruption of the like the cast of characters who are allowed in yeah and so you're going from pool to pool lawn to lawn garden to garden you're 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 talking about a kind of connected culture so that demographic is is very standardized and maintained. exactly and the moment you hit the highway suddenly all these like intruders appear yeah yeah so, and it's like Nettie, no matter how great he looks in his swimsuit, is suddenly this odd figure and subject of ridicule. And I think that's a real, I think you're right. That's a real turning point. That anyone can see him. him start to shrink. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the, yeah, yeah. Um, and it starts to get cold. I think that's where like. God, it's so um, visceral. There's that whole like, and and we've all been there when you're, you know, like you're in a bathing suit, you get out of a pool and suddenly it's cold and it feels like this is, it wasn't quite what I wanted to experience physically. Yeah. Um, you're so vulnerable. That, yeah. So that shift happens. And I think even when he goes to that, you know, he arrives at the more um, upstart house, which is, you know, not the establishment. And I loved this too. Um, the Biswangers um, who are people who invite um their electricians and their real estate brokers to their parties. And that, you know, Nettie thinks of himself as kind of a real, you know, they've he's never accepted one of their invitations. Um, and there he arrives in his swimsuit expecting to be sort of praised for just showing up. Yeah. Um, instead, it's a real, there's this real tension. It's like, who's that? Who's the idiot in the bathing suit? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, there's something I was just, there was like a list of things. It's not just who they invite. It's also what they talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, yes. Yes. And I'm just scrolling. Right to find it. Um, and I think that's where we start to see what you had mentioned earlier, which is, um, 
how he is perceived by the the bartender. Yeah. Um, who he feels like he's got this established rapport with all these people. And this one guy treats him um, more dismissively, but he's still staff and he finds that um, kind of shocking and, you know, has a kind of clearly you don't know who I, who I am kind of person, you know, kind of. Uh, exactly. I'm going to find the this wingers. It's um, like he never has to, he never has to assert himself until he realizes that he no longer is that person. And then he actually does have to assert himself to say like, you don't get to treat me like this, or he has to feel that shock that people don't. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The same way. And then that's when he said something like he says, they would in fact be lucky to give him a drink. And then I thought this was interesting too. I, cause I love, um, I love these kind of protocols and um, as you know, and I love these um, slight hints at etiquette, and when it says the Biswangers invited him and Lucinda for dinner four times a year, six weeks in advance, which yeah. shows this like signals this kind of desperation um, that he says they were always rebuffed. And yet they continued to send out their invitations, unwilling to comprehend the rigid and undemocratic realities of their society. Exactly. And yet the thing is that they're not that rigid. Because no, and, and I think that's where it comes right into this thing that you were just referring to. They were the sort of people who discussed the price of things at cocktails, exchanged market tips during dinner, and after dinner told dirty stories to mix company. Yes, um, that's what I was talking about because yeah. I thought that, that was interesting because all of those things are true of Nettie also. He just doesn't talk about them. You know, yes. it's not that he's it's not that he's actually like better at money or is you know not having affairs or whatever it's just that he won't talk about it and it's like that it's a sign of how far he has fallen in society by the time he gets to this that he has to start thinking about these things mm-hmm. like yeah and he's that- trying to he's trying to kind of remind himself how far above the biswangers he is you know because then they go into the um Grace Biswanger was the kind of hostess who asked the ophthalmologist, the veterinarian, and the real estate dealer, and the dentist. Um, so that idea of like um, her not knowing the rules, and 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 he has a sense of kind of um, innate knowledge of these protocols, um, and it just kind of starts to hint at his irrelevance and and the irrelevance of his rules because. Clearly, the Biswangers are now in his path and yeah. part of that community, and they're having a party that's filled with people. So, well, and you could certainly, you know, put this alongside something like, you know, Edith Wharton, uh, like we could say House of Mirth or Age of Innocence. Um, I think there's a lot of stories about Americans mm-hmm. who think that the rules are a little bit more. Um, rigid than they really are you know like the rules might be very rigid for europeans um but they're actually not that rigid for americans and that um that stories would have to include like stories that include any expense of time which obviously this is just one day but at the same time it is also like at least a year in a certain sense um well, and I think as you talked about that that English model, 
you know, the British aristocracy is very rigid unless you are, you know, a duke and you can do whatever you want. So depending on who you are within those confines, there, there's this sort of set of rules. Um, but the aristocracy loves to break those rules because they can. Oh, well, okay. So yes. And I think that that's one of the things that I was thinking about, like the Mitfords, where it's mm -hmm. like being an incredible weirdo is definitely available if you're an aristocrat. Yes. In fact, it's yeah. almost so like eccentricity is just because it makes things more interesting, um, is definitely embraced, but you can't come in from the outside like that. No. You have to be kind of raised from the inside like that. And I think um, that's where Nettie's self perception thinks that like I can do these things because I'm me. Exactly. That he, you know? he sort of like he bought his own um, uh, hype in a sense. Like he believed. Totally. Yeah. 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 And it's like partly it's youth and partly it's a sense of um, sort of social standing and uh, wealth, but that he actually is not in a, He's not in a context that'll hold him enough to allow him to be a true eccentric, like, you know, the Mitford's father. Totally. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then that's when we see, um, and I do, I love this line too, when he said, um, his was a world in which the caterer's men kept the social score. And to be rebuffed by a part-time barkeep meant that he had suffered some loss of social esteem. Um, and so that idea that um, that there's this kind of traveling band of waiters and bartenders at all these gatherings who are kind of aware and understand the hierarchies involved in this social structure, and that somehow by being rebuffed by a bartender, that's almost more powerful than being rebuffed by the hostess, because those the caterer's men kept the social score. Um, yeah. So I find that really interesting that it actually is someone from the outside um, who kind of disturbs him into wondering what's going on more than Grace. Yeah. That's really interesting. That's a really. Um, so sorry, this is going to sound like I'm going backward, but I'm responding to your point. Um, one of the things that I was thinking about the um, like Jeeves and Worcester type story from, I guess, a bit earlier than this, but it's like more uh, the same time as the Dorothy Parker story is that they think that like on some level, it's all a joke. Like even if they're quite serious, like, you know, Evelyn Waugh type writing, I think they know on some level that the whole, their whole way of being is sort of ridiculous and is kind of getting phased out whether they like it or not that they're not really serious people um and i think yeah, and there's no room particularly for for incredibly serious people like it's exactly. theater really all of that costume changes and and ritual um it's a way to kind of get through the day and and enjoy them uh sort of enjoy that interaction though it's never um structured so that it's for any length of time. So I think there's a way in which um, all of that social ritual kind of uh, keeps things sort of lubricated and keeps people busy. You know, we have to go change yeah. now. 
to dress for dinner. We have to do this. We have to do that. So there's all of that. But it is very, very much theatrical more than it is um, kind of fundamental to who they are as people. Yeah. And I I think that Nettie doesn't seem to know that. Like, he doesn't seem to know that on some level he is play acting something that has already become itself theater that he's like pretending to be, or he doesn't know that he's pretending, but let's say that he's sort of made up his consciousness and his life to seem like a, you know, landed gentry in England. But even those people know that this is all kind of fake and that they're not really doing it anymore. Um, And that the people who are actually who have anything on the line are like the bartenders or the valets or whoever, you know, it's, it's, it's well, I think that's where so much great um, narrative comes from juxtaposing the two, the sort of upstairs downstairs um, model is so effective because it, it really shows the tension between those two groups and how that works and how those mechanisms are both um, reinforcing and polarizing at the same time. Exactly. Yeah. And I think um, when you get to this point in the story, though, you start to like think back to the beginning and and, you know, Nettie's whole kind of manifest destiny view of the world. And you realize um, there's a level of desperation underpinning yeah. that and that um, that that sort of person. And I think we all know them who is always kind of very propulsive in what they do and what they, you know, they always have a great idea, you know, what we should do. And there's always that sense of um, restless energy, but often because they need distraction from reality. Yeah. Um, And from, you know, even though he's leaving his wife there and he names the river after her. So clearly they're setting out this kind of affection for her. Clearly he wants to play this game and and pursue this path because it's something to do instead of reckoning with with whatever is really plaguing his existence. Yeah, and I I think that even by the end of the story, even though we know that there are all of these circumstances, you know, things that he's done, like he's squandered his money, he's he's done all these various things. Um, we don't know what the kind of basic problem is. It's not right. it's not like a a story of I don't know childhood trauma or something like that. It's yeah, much yeah, more yeah. like that being a person is an itch that he cannot scratch, and he's just like not okay in some yeah. way like aging or something which is I yeah. mean I, I like it that it's vague I think it feels um feels like reality yeah like, and I think like um and you start I think there's a kind of turning point right when he is at that the 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 Biswangers which and and then he goes to his um mistresses so you start to reveal that side of clearly this is a he's got a messy past with this mistress um and I love when she asks him at some point you know like god will you ever grow up yeah because I think you know like she's actually pinpointing the fundamental problem yeah Yeah. is not being able to kind of um, evolve out of that character um and I think that's where suddenly we start to feel a past 
um, but up against the the present in a very physical way. Yeah. Um, now, now we have a person. It's not just chatter and it's not just gossip or reference. Now there's like a physical body that's like we've just found the dead body or something like in the way that yeah. the story is constructed. Like now we've got um, a person that's that's like a living, breathing mistake. And the fact that she cried when he broke it off. Yeah. Well, okay. Two things in, in terms of her, her physicality, there's this sort of, I mean, I would say a little bit shocking phrase where he describes love and then there's a dash and then he says a uh, sexual roughhouse. Oh yeah. In fact, was the supreme elixir, the painkiller, the brightly colored pill that would put the spring back in his step and the joy of life in his heart, which is like, um, it's raunchy compared to the rest of, you know, yeah. it, it does feel like you're, you're being put into a much more physical zone than he's been otherwise. Um, and then, uh, and I like where time gets slippery right there too. Yeah. Like when he says I, he had an affair with, with her, um, last week, last month, last year, like, yeah. and now you're starting to kind of feel that, that, um, more surreal sense of time get more um more slippery a little less um tied to a kind of timeline than about memory and yeah. about what 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 may have happened um yeah and the slipperiness the fact that that's the place where he starts kind of losing the precision of time which was never super precise but it gets much less no. I agree. Yeah. And then he says it had been he thought a lighthearted affair although she wept when he broke it off. I think you could you could say from the sentence that I just read that it that he truly it was truly lighthearted from his side but I think the fact that he also kind of loses sense of time there suggests that he's actually lying to himself about the lightheartedness from his side also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that he just doesn't know how to grow up in relation to this entire situation. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then again, the the ladder comes back again um, when he jumps into that pool um, and he uses the ladder again. And I just feel like you start to feel that like, you, or, or there's, this repeated like degradation going on where he's he's just weakening and now he's just sort of dependent on the ladder which i think is sort of that image of you know a man with a cane or you know like the the yeah. physical assistance that somebody needs as the as that um old age is descending or whatever the timeline is that we're confronting in this story however it's unfolding he is weakening yeah from that sharp, virile character that's on those opening pages. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm going to just read this sentence. Uh, going out onto the dark lawn, he smelled chrysanthemums or marigolds, some stubborn autumnal fragrance in the night air, strong as gas. Um, that seems very deathly, right? Like marigolds and chrysanthemums in the yeah. dark. Is yeah, yeah. It's so, I don't know. I, I can smell it. I can see it. It seems yes. so physical. And yet at yeah. the same time, it does have this feeling of foreboding. It's like beyond autumnal. It's it's just remarkable writing, you know? Which... I love how the, the, the kind of 
He's not too heavy handed with the references to kind of um, nature, but there's the um, the leaves and the chrysanthemums and things turning and uh, things, you know, kind of going from the height of summer and that that sense of, you know, clement weather um, yeah. and then the kind of storm on the horizon and the, and the day is getting like actually shorter. It's getting dark um, yeah. and, you know, summer should be the longest days of the year. And so um, pulling that sense of 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 the the day shrinking. Yeah. As he's sort of running out, literally running out of time. Yeah. And then there's <laughs> it was probably the first time in his adult life that he had ever cried. Certainly the first time in his life that he had ever felt so miserable, cold, tired, and bewildered. Like he sounds like a little child, you know? Like and then he comes back, though. He comes back to that barkeep. He could yeah. not understand the rudeness of the caterer's barkeep. Yeah. And yeah. and I just like, it's funny to me how that really clings to him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, exactly. The, it's the caterer's barkeep and the, the mistress, the two people that he thinks should be, should absolutely be sort of uh, supporting his dignity. Yeah. And then he gets to the Gil Martin's pool. And I think this is again telling um, as a guy who says at the beginning, he had no respect for a man who doesn't hurl himself into pools. And then yeah. he says, for the first time in his life, he did not dive, but went down the steps into the icy water and swam a hobbled side stroke that he might have learned as a child. And so I feel like now we've come full circle. He's an old man. He's, you know, yeah. he's, He's feebled and um, it's just a beautiful way of doing it because it's such a visceral portrait to imagine a guy diving into a pool and that splash and that crisp entry and all of that or or a guy, you know, pulling himself out of a pool without using a ladder that takes this kind of tremendous core strength and it has this certain like vigor to it. And now we get to this point and it's still him in a pool, but it, it it's as, as kind of weak as you can get as he's kind of going down these steps and then he's doing the side stroke instead of the crawl. And I think yeah. it's such a brilliant way of having us visualize um, aging. Or or whatever the source of his decline is. Yeah. Just. Yeah. I mean, just that. Yeah. I, I completely agree. I find the ending to be so just sad you know like it's just it's just you feel it in your body you know right like he, he really delivers you know and it, and you think it's not that many pages and no, the fact that he can like deliver all of this and get you there and you're just so in it um and i i think it's tremendous how this is structured yeah. um and how he um takes us through this um without fully abandoning that character to kind of make him do something else or surprise us with this. Like he's still, you know, he's very committed to this pool idea. Yeah. Yeah. And he's still doing it even at the end. And so the way that there's that Cheever is kind of gently toggling between a quite linear narrative of crossing these pools and a kind of bigger, more surrealist metaphor of 
interacting with all these things in a way that's symbolic of um, a different kind of, of suffering and demise um, is so beautiful. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's so it's both economical and also feels totally absorbing, which is a a rare yeah. combination, I think. It's it's sort of economical and expansive at the same time. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I, we don't have to talk about it too much, but there is the um, Burt Lancaster movie that um, that was made of the story pretty soon after the story came out, uh, and it's it's interesting how much the movie does not add. Like oh, how disaster. Okay, I, I know you don't like the movie. I think I like the movie a little more than you do. I just, um, I don't think the casting was bad. I thought actually, um, I thought he was quite uh, what I envisioned for the character. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I felt like the people he was uh, encountering were well cast. Mm-hmm. Um, but they added things where they didn't need to. You know, the daughter's friend. Oh yeah, I, I I'm not I'm not a big fan of the daughter's friend. I daughter's I'm friend who always had a crush on him, and that gets a little odd and and was totally unnecessary. I just think it's interest it's interesting how a story this short could turn into a two hour movie with quite little added. Mm-hmm. That really it is almost exactly just the same things that happen in the story, but the story is so economical. I know that's the problem is when they put it on film, um, they exaggerated the elements of it. And I just think what's great about the story is how refined it is. And so in adding these characters and kind of blowing them up and making them a little bit more cartoonish, I felt like it lost so much. Um, Maybe in the hands of another filmmaker, it could have been beautiful. Um, But I think they they felt what they decided to emphasize is was just, um, I don't know, not so much what I was interested in. Um, And I think I also had a very different sense of what this all looked like. Um, You know, one of the things you love about reading is how you're you're taking the author's words and you're literally conjuring the image for yourself. Um, And so sometimes when that's put on film and somebody else has a different imagining than you did, it feels very, um, I don't know, it feels like somehow uh, you've been betrayed by the image you're carrying with you. I agree with you. And one of those places for me is that in this story, I imagine that he swims a lot more than he walks. Yes, exactly. And in the in the film, there's a lot of running through the woods, which is um, looks painful and uncomfortable. And he like cuts his feet and stuff. And that wasn't. um, I was picturing much more rolling green lawns and um, and and bright blue jewel like pools. Yeah, and I mean even if it's not rationally true, like obviously there isn't a part of Connecticut where there are more pools than right, obviously. You know, land. But at the same time, the story seems like it's about those pool gestures. It's about yeah. getting in with the ladder or without the ladder. It's about um, that much more than like being in a bathing suit, picking your way through hedges, which is sort totally. of, it's like what sticks in my mind is those images. I know. I felt like, you. I think you're right. I think the proportions were wrong somehow. Yeah. 
Um, it wasn't their fault, I don't think. I think it would have been very difficult to make it more about the actual pools. Yeah. Um, I'm, not, I'm just not sure it was supposed to be a film. Yeah. No, right? Like not everyone it. should, everything should be. So, yeah, um, yeah I, I really didn't like it. Um, so should we talk about the waltz a bit? We should talk about the waltz. Um, I'm so happy that you chose this as our second text because I love them side by side. I thought they were wonderful to read together. I mean, and it's amazing. They're exactly 20 years apart. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, and yet I, they don't feel far apart at all. They feel like, they no. been, you know, like the same year. Yeah. I mean, in a way they're using the same, the same idea which obviously since Parker wrote hers first was her idea first, which is like, there's this situation that is some, in some way it's just literally true in the life of the person, of the person in the story. And it also could seem like a metaphor for a larger life situation. Yes. Yeah. Um, um, and there's these kind of dueling dialogues. Yes of a kind of, um, and, and more transparent in the waltz, this kind of idea of your public presentation um, and your sort of private self and, you know, what you tell the world versus that inner monologue that informs what you think. Yeah, and in Nettie's case, he's lying to himself. Like, he's trying to make the external truth be the only truth. Right. When there, in fact this other truth that um that he owes money and that he's you know in a, in this decline whereas in this one there's just a public truth which is that she is waltzing that the narrator is waltzing and then in her mind she has these just hilarious i couldn't oh, God, I mean, how funny they are the humor and what's interesting i mean i've read this story so many times and i've never not laughed out loud. I mean, I think it's literally the funniest thing I've ever written because it delivers every single time um, every on single so time. many levels. Yeah. I think the rhythm is stunningly well done. And when you think, I think about, you know, they're they're dancing this wall. She's been asked to dance by this guy who's clearly a very clumsy dancer um, and is really um, difficult to dance with physically. Um, and I feel like the the writing um mimics the sort of sense of trying to keep pace with someone who can't yeah have a, a sort of balanced um step and the way in which she writes and it the, the even the use of language um and the the sounds of words you, they start to get kind of musical but in an awkward way to mimic the way it is to dance with this guy i just think it's it, it's brilliant can I read? I want to read one of those things that, oh, please, that, yes. um, that I think is the um, sort of like the the rhythm that you're talking about. Um, uh, everyone else at the table had got up to dance except him and me. There was I trapped, trapped like a trap in a trap. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Funny. <laughs> um, I just love that. Um, I just I think the humor is also really um brave. 
Um, like I just think, well, and particularly brave because it's a it's a woman writer. Like it's kind of transgressive to like take the, I know it's Dorothy Parker, but at the time to be this funny, yeah, um, and to take you know the female point of view and do this with it. Um, well, it's just so um, so brazen. I mean, it really is like when you think about like, so this is 1933 and you think about, you know, this obviously this is so 44, many, I think, right. Well, no, that was when it was collected. I think it first came out in 33. Oh, oh, okay. Interesting. Oh, okay. Then my mistake. I thought it was 44. All right. Well, I um, am not absolutely certain, but that's just what I found on the internet. <laughs> um, Interesting. But so uh, I don't think it matters hugely. I think that the, um, the thing I mean is like in the 19th century, obviously there's so many stories about women who don't want to go along with whatever's happening, you know, like whether they're being yeah. kidnapped by monks or whatever it is. It's like, there's so many stories, but they're never like snarky like this. It, like yeah. the, the sort of acidity of her voice is so striking. And um, the, the like even when she doesn't know his name. Yeah. And she says, she says, like, uh, hang on. Um, I haven't any idea what it is. Jukes would be my guess from the look in his eye. How do you do, Mr. Jukes? And how is that dear little brother of yours with the two heads? I mean, it's <laughs> so, um, it's fantastic. And it, it, this, I just, oh, and then she gets it when she says, oh, yes. Do let's dance together. Let's, oh yes, do let's dance together. It's so nice to meet a man who isn't a scaredy cat about catching my berry berry. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, I find it. Um, oh wait, and she says, um, "What can I say when a man asks you to dance with him? I most certainly will not dance with you. I'll see you in hell first. Why, thank you. I'd like to awfully, but I'm having labor pains. <laughs> oh, yes, do let's dance together. It's so nice to meet a man who isn't scared, a scaredy cat about catching my berry berry. And so, like, the idea that, like, she's laying out, like, she has no choice. Like, well, he's okay. asking and... So, this was one of the other things that really struck me about this, is why does she have no choice? Sort of like the um, in the swimmer, there's no grown-ups here. There's no older generation. There's no actual force of compulsion in the story. It's just that she knows she has to, but there isn't a specific person that is making her do it. You know what I mean? Well, I think that's the larger um, point here, though, is that that's what you do. Yeah, like, yeah, you know, like there's a, there's a, um, there's no saying no, thank you. It's just that's what you do. That's sort of what's required of you. That kind of acquiescence is part of being a woman in that society. And, um, well, if so you are kind of clever and funny and all these things that she demonstrates here. She still doesn't really have agency to say no. And so no, instead, absolutely. she has this dialogue. The, and I feel like it's continue. almost like that's what's getting her through it. 
No, totally. You know, like he's, you know, she's trying to keep up. He's kicking her in the shins. You know, they're doing this. But her own amusement, which is all the more commendable, um, is what allows her to kind of survive the the awkwardness of it all um, and the sense that, you know, that she should be grateful that he asked her to dance. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Well, so, okay. I, I want to make two points. Um, one of them is that I think that that lack of external force that is forcing you to do the thing that you don't want to do. Um, it's kind of like um, Nettie might feel more free because like, there isn't an older generation that's controlling him in any way, but he isn't actually more free. It's just, there's nobody that will catch him when he starts to fall. Like, Mm. and I think that in some, like nobody will tell him like you're embarrassing yourself. Like you have to shape up and fly. Right. If you're going to stay in society, like he just falls and nobody kind of cares. Um, And then I think in this case, it's sort of like, you might think that, the fact that this is a public dance, right? Like she's not, this isn't like a a private ballroom or something like that. Like she's in public. She's a public woman. Her memories when she does think about the past are, I have it here. Okay. Her other life, her memories involve the West Indies, a taxi smash, a bronze ashtray, summer in a sailboat. Um, In my notes, I wrote some of these are timeless, um, but there's, also a feeling that she's like, she has this big life, you know, that this is one moment for her in a big life. And yet she doesn't actually have more freedom than if there were like a chaperone telling her like, no, this is good manners. This is what you have to do right now. Yeah. I I feel like that's implied and that this is like, this is one moment captured in a series of repeated moments. Yes, yes. She's consistently put in this position, as most women are, where you have to kind of indulge this clumsy dancer just to be polite. And um, Oh, yeah. No, I, I completely agree. I think it's um, it's just an interesting, like an early version of the problem of modern womanhood, where yeah. like in this one hand, you have all these new freedoms. And on the other hand, you only have freedoms to do the things that you probably would have had to do anyway right 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 and then Um, and then I think what you like your quiet liberation um is to be to amuse yourself and be funny yeah that's what like Dorothy Parker is kind of putting on the page it's like don't think we're mindlessly dancing with you yeah you know like this is what's going on in our heads like we're smart and we're clever and we're funny and you're kicking us in the shins and don't think we're having a good time. <laughs> I wish I were this smart and clever and funny, but yeah. Well, I know, that's you true. Know. I know. I want it to stand for yeah. all of us. I, I think we all have it in us. Um, no, we're yeah. not sorry, Parker, but I love that idea of the dueling um, public-private persona um, and that the private persona just runs circles around the public persona. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I was thinking is that the the waltz could be with life itself. That the thing that she's forced to do is to suffer the indignities of being a person. Yeah. And 
that the only thing that she can do in the face of it's like the 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 fact that it ends with the waltz continuing is obviously just a joke on how much she wants the waltz to be over with this particular person but i also think that there's something about just the ongoingness of life like she's obviously a person who has written about you know depression and had serious problems um that the ongoingness of life and the fact that it does end with her continuing to dance but there's something almost hopeful about that do you know what i mean oh, that's interesting i didn't read it as hopeful as much as it was kind of inevitable that um like this situation just keeps repeating itself. Like the orchestra always comes back. They always strike up the band again. Um, you'll always have to keep doing this. Um, like almost yeah. in the way of like lack of choice. Um, and that kind of in some ways, not all you have, but but what you really have are your own personal reserves to kind yeah. of get you through that. And um and not simply just quietly dance with this person, but instead, like to me, it's just like this bang, zoom, whiz of an inner dialogue that just shows all this woman has to offer um, that's kind of not allowed to seep out into the world. Um, yeah, yeah. I um, There is a feeling that the envelope of her consciousness really does never, as you say, seep. It's like it there's no connection between her thoughts and then what happens in the world. None yeah. of her wishes, none of her wishes are reflected in what happens in any way. She doesn't right. say and she's so far like ahead of, you know, that they're sort of um, like he's considered the person who has the power to get her to dance and to, um, you know, whether he decides to ask her to dance or somebody else to dance. But in the end, she's so much more clever than he is that almost dancing is easier than actually trying to talk to him. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's that point at which um, she says something like that. Um, uh, yeah. Here. Um, still, if we were back at the table, I'd probably have to talk to him. Look at him. What could you say to a thing like that? Did you go to the circus this year? What's your favorite <laughs> kind of ice cream? How do you spell cat? <laughs> I wrote that down too. It was so funny. Like she just does not think that he's like a real person. Exactly. Like I guess I'm as well off here, as well off as well off as if I were in a cement mixer in full action. <laughs> I mean, which seems so modern to me, the idea of a cement mixer in 1933. Um but I love that she's kind of weighing like the 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 options here. And maybe it's better to be like kicked into the kicked in the shins while you're dancing a waltz rather than like trying to actually have a conversation with, you know, this guy who she calls a you know, Mrs. Leary, Mrs. O'Leary's cow, Mrs. O'Leary's and, cow like hulking yes. peasant. Oh, did you see the, the part where uh, she says that um, that his family must have to like put him on his back to get his shoes on? <laughs> yes. So, I mean, I think the juxtaposition of the two stories, you know, this kind of sense of, um, you know, these distilled male and female identities 
I, I just yeah. think that. I mean, it's it, there's definitely a temptation to 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 see that how clear her mind is versus how hazy his mind is, like how much he's allowed to lie to himself and how much if she were to lie to herself, then her life would only be lies. You well, know? and just like how much slack he's given in the world. Yeah. Kind yeah. of be that and how little rope she has to even say, I don't want to dance. Yeah. Uh, so I think that sense of constraint um, on her side versus kind of the ability to just explode um, on his, I just think it's very telling um, and not particularly uh, changing in the time between these two pieces being written. No, absolutely yeah. not. I, I would say that, I mean, I wouldn't say that there's a huge change till now either. I think either of these, you know, could be written now, which is actually kind of amazing. To yeah. I mean, other than like people do a lot less social dancing now um, and probably the rules around accepting if somebody has asked you to dance is probably different. But like in some ways, I think that the 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 Dorothy Parker one seems like it could you know some version of it could be written right now yeah definitely some version of it is and some sense of of what those boundaries are for women and um and again I just think even um sort of restrictions on how how funny a woman is supposed to be oh my gosh yeah it's so recent like was it like 2006 when there was a whole like are women actually funny like the last time that was supposed to be a conversation that we were supposed to take seriously like that 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 was like something that people would write in magazines and newspapers like that women are not actually funny you know yeah. that, that there was like a both sides that needed to air their position like whether it's possible for a woman to be funny which is uh ludicrous you know? I know I mean so it seems um, particularly, um, and this to me, the difference is too, like Dorothy Parker in 1933, it doesn't just have like a few funny lines. Oh no, it's like the every thing is line. funny. Like yeah. it's just so sustained throughout the whole thing and the, the, the cadence of the text and how those jokes are delivered and how those punchlines are delivered. Um, it's really sophisticated. Yeah. It's just, it's so economical. I mean, much like the, the swimmer, it's so economical and every yeah. single line delivers. Um, and I, I don't know if you see a shape of the story to me. I don't see very much shape of the story. I think that, to some extent, any of the lines could come at different places, you know, like the paragraphs could be in. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think there is a, um, it doesn't have the same, um, it's working in a different way where it's, exactly. um, it's got that sort of tumbling feel. And I feel like it has, you know, when we look at it next to the Cheever story, it has the same sense of kind of, um, kind of propulsiveness, like this, this thing that's a little bit out of control. And so I, I like that for both of them, because I think as a reader, you kind of get caught up in that pace. Um, 
but yes, in the sense that it doesn't have a, a particularly, you know, thudding, poignant ending, other than the fact that um, it's just going to keep going on and on and on. Well, so, okay, I actually just want to read a funny line that I happened to see as I was scrolling through. Um, uh, he can't keep this up indefinitely. He's only flesh and blood. Die he must and die he shall for what he did to me. <laughs> uh, okay, but I think that the uh, um, the the part right before the end where she thinks about the rest of her life outside of the dance. Um, it's interesting to me that she never thinks about how she got to the dance this particular evening. Like she's not thinking about like what she did that morning or that afternoon. Right. She's only, it's like either she's in the dance or she's in like the wider world. Right. Well, but I do think she's doing something very deliberate in those in those um, examples when she said, you know, there was a time I was in a hurricane in the West Indies. There was the day I got my head cut open in the taxi smash. Um, there was the night the drunken lady threw a bronze ashtray at her own true love and got me instead. Um, <laughs> there was that summer that the sailboat kept capsizing. Oh, what an easy, peaceful time was mine until I fell in with Swifty here. That she's taking all these like awful physically calamitous events and saying, oh, what an easy time it was compared to dancing with this guy. Um and so I I love that um that like the waltz becomes like the worst thing that ever happened to her. <laughs> yeah, but that's what I mean. It's like it's like a crescendo. It's yeah. like she's complaining about the waltz, and then she's like, here are all of these, as you said, physically calamitous things that I have survived. I will survive this, you know, like her determination to survive the waltz sort of yes, goes to yes. a crescendo there. And um, and so that when, once the music continues and she sees that she will in fact continue waltzing basically forever in in the world of the story um it's like she's given herself strength by yeah. saying yeah, yeah, yeah. that this is actually the worst thing that's ever happened <laughs> yeah 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 um but she'll I mean, survive yeah and i like how she then is um like she, oh, there's a point at which, and like you said, I think some of this um, this pacing could be interchangeable. But she does say, like, I I wonder why I didn't tell him I was tired. Yeah. You know, I wonder why I didn't suggest going back to the table. I could have said just listen to the music. So she's kind of hedging now. Like, why didn't I? Um, because then she, I think she worries about like having to talk to him. Um, Exactly, because it's not a, it's not only that she's it's not just dancing with him that she can't avoid, it's engaging with him at all. Yeah. Yeah. Um and then sure her like sense at the end of that paragraph um is that uh anybody who isn't waltzing with Mrs. O'Leary's cow, I've the, with this Mrs. O'Leary's cow I've got here is having a good time. And then she kind of goes into, and then I'd have to talk to him. And then I, she goes into that, like, how do you spell cat? Um, <laughs> so I just, like, she's also weighing, you know, what are the options here? 
Um, and maybe waltzing is sort of the the better end of the stick. Um, <laughs> um, hang on, I want to read another funny part. Um, <laughs> that because it's also one of her, like her anxieties are about herself also. Um, she says, my hair is hanging along my cheeks. My skirt is swaddling about me. I can feel the cold damp of my brow. I must look like something out of the fall of the house of Usher. This sort of thing takes a fearful toll of a woman my age. Uh, and he worked up his little step himself. He with his degenerate cunning. And it was just a tiny bit tricky at first, but now I think I've got it. Two stumbles, slip, and 20-yard dash. Yes, I've got it. I've got several other things, too, including a split shin and a bitter heart. Um, I think that, like, the fact that her dislike of him does not, it doesn't build her up. Yeah, well, and she has that great bit after that that says, I hate this creature I'm chained to. I hated him the moment I saw his leering, bestial face. (laughs) And here I've been locked in his noxious embrace for the 35 years this waltz has lasted. (laughs) I I mean, it's just so... um, I just, I I love the way, too, that... um, She's got so much um, strength of character in these um, kind of monologues to herself. And then when she slips into the um, the public persona, it's all very like, oh, yes, it's lovely, isn't it? It's simply lovely. It's the loveliest waltz ever. You know, and it's just yeah. kind of patter that you're taught to engage um, with people, to use this sort of language of acquiescence and um, and kind of sugary sweetness. Um, and then to like, then she like toggles between that um, and this sort of brute, brilliant, um, forceful analysis of what she's going through. Um, I think, it, again, it's another thing that Parker is doing to like exaggerate um, yeah. these two ways of being in the world. Yeah, I think that the the fact that there aren't any conventional phrases that would match her meaning, that that she's constrained from saying any of the things she's thinking. Yeah. yeah. Um, versus in The Swimmer, where in, in some ways Nettie's truth is what he's, like he is living his truth. He is doing what he feels is true and right he's just also lying to himself. Right. Right. And he has no platitudes though for anyone. Exactly. But like when, when people speak to him, like he does understand them correctly. Yeah. And he feels that he is understood correctly by them when he speaks. And I think he, but he has no sense of um, like obligation. No, exactly. I mean, he has nothing but obligation, you know, kind of, um, as she interacts with the world, it's filled with obligation. And I think that next to Nettie's just unbridled um, permission to yeah. Yeah. <laughs> do whatever he wants, um, despite what's crumbling around him, um, they're, they're just very interestingly juxtaposed. They really are. And it, it, even when he is actually kind of implicitly told to buzz off by, you know, that when... Uh, 
who is it, Ms. Biswanger, who says, um, like, oh, a gate crasher, like this party has everything, even a gate crasher. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Then he still jumps into her pool, you know? Right. I mean, like, like, and and thinks you're lucky that I'm here. Yeah, yeah. Um, Which I think that that's something that, especially in the U.S., I would say, is like aestheticized, the idea of an attractive man who feels completely at home and you know wherever he is i think that yeah. that's something that for better yeah. or worse is something that's very aestheticized um, i think um swagger is yeah yeah it, the, the swagger or um uh, it, it's like somewhere in between like being rich and then being the Marlboro man and not believing in fences you know yeah yeah it's like the, it's like well it's it's sort of how you um walk through the world i mean it's kind of the ultimate privilege right where you just don't question your presence anywhere you know like there's no sense that um for someone like nenny like ironically he has no sense that it won't work out yeah (laughs) even though it's not working out the way he planned and but his there is this way that what drives him is the sense of his own, like his own, I don't know, like place in the world, like that, 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 that he's entitled to that. Yeah. And I think that the way to just like the, the way that a person like Nettie would perceive someone like the narrator in the walls is that she's manipulative or that Mm -hmm. she's uh, secretive or, um it just I think that there's a lot of or ways. That she can't so if he's not thinking about her and her inner life and just looking at her dancing in a kind of more acquiescent way, he'd probably think, Oh, she, you know, isn't she dear, but she can't keep up. Yeah. Yeah. Her problem. It's not that he can't dance, it's that she can't keep up. And like, and and I think there would be a kind of Nettie would look at her and just think, well, there's plenty of other women to dance with. Exactly. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and he, he, I mean, there is something strange about time in both of these stories where time goes too fast for Nettie and it goes too slowly for the waltz narrator that she's stuck in this waltz forever. And um, for, like for, you know, 31 years and for Nettie, it's like everything is just zooming past so quickly, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and I think that there's, there's something in there where Nettie's refusal to perceive other people and refusal to consider what their wishes would be or what their needs would be um, is one of the reasons that he's zooming through. Right. Well, I mean, ultimately, ultimately this is about control. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like it or not, you know, he's completely in control um, for better or for worse. Um, and she has no control over her, her destiny, her responses or whatever. She only has control of her own, of her own mind, of her own mind, her own, um, her own humor, her own, like her, her inner life. I mean, it's what, um, what she kind of not only controls, but like commandeers. Yeah. 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 
Um, so one interesting thing that I read about Dorothy Parker, maybe you already knew this, but I did not, is um, that she left her estate to Martin Luther King Jr. when she, or she tried to, but he died. And so she left her estate to the NAACP. And really? The- yeah, that she was um, she was blacklisted in Hollywood for her left wing political activities, oh. and um, apparently the NAACP is to this day in charge of uh, her work and making sure that she's like her grave and stuff like that are um, uh, cared for by them. How extraordinary. Well, I mean, that Fascinating. just yeah. to me, um, kind of shocking, but not surprising in a way. Um, exactly. Because she was a woman who's so far ahead of her time. Yeah. Um, and so um, clued into her own circumstance in a way that I think was exceptional. Um, yeah. She completely understood um the sort of mechanisms around her designed to sort of undermine her success potentially and thwarted them and um I think that's part of her genius so to me someone who's in that situation could also spot a parallel circumstance in someone else and that makes a lot of sense then I I think that that's that's sort of my read on that fact also like bringing that fact to put alongside this story is that she completely understands these power dynamics yep. and has sympathy for anyone who is stuck in that relation to the rest of society. Yeah. 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 All right. And that's the end of our episode on Cheever and Parker. Thank you to Christine, to Adam Bear for our music well as to everyone at literary hub for hosting us as always we love to hear from listeners so please rate and review us on apple podcasts or tweet to us at lit century pod on twitter or email us at lit century podcast at gmail.com thank you and goodbye till next month